We are making history again, Murph. That's how we're making history. I know how we're doing it. Yes, because this is an episode 124. It's a continuation of episode 123 with the only man documented now to talk faster and take more airtime than I do, Rick Rambo. So we are now at part three of episode 123. Yeah, it's, uh, and and I mean, if you've heard, the, let me see if I get my time straight. Bidi, 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 that's all, folks. If you work, if you, if you work, good Lord, this is getting worse. <laughs> I'm about to go back to drink. Are you on or off your meds? I'm not Apparently sure. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> I had my vitamin today. Um, anyway, if you if you heard the first two sessions with Rick Rambo, his stories are uh, it's just phenomenal. They're unbelievable. The fact that you got the small town Ohio boy that goes down in the Caribbean and lives in a in a beautiful island and the things that he went through there and then ends up in Alaska and and has no plans of ever leaving Alaska. I don't think. I mean, it's just his stories are are almost beyond belief. But you know what? With the last name of Rambo. You better be able to put up or shut up, you know? That's right. And I'm pretty sure Rick can put up. Yeah, he can put up. Well, speaking of putting up with me and you, let's just finish our small talk here and we'll get into our, as they say, our case in chief. Say, guys, welcome back. Um, You know, thank you guys again for joining us. Make sure you head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think of this episode. Let us know what you think about what's going on. We really appreciate it. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We put some pictures of there of Rick. So if you want to see some of the stuff Rick got involved in and what he took out with a 44 Magnum pistol. Yo. (laughs) You got to just go, even if you don't listen to his interview, go look at this picture. Go look at the picture. It will make you crap your knickers. There are lots and losses. So follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, make sure you go hit up Game of Crimes fans. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, rules with the iron fist with the velvet glove ensconced over that iron fist. Just answer a couple questions, get admitted into the inner sanctum, and you too shall know. The joy that is Game of Crimes fans. There you go. Also, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Guess what we got there, Murph? Tons of stuff. Lots of good stuff. That's not just stuff. That's good stuff. Good stuff. We just we got the good stuff. We just finished our Q&A. Um, a good little over an hour worth of questions from folks that we answer all of them from uh, favorite Christmas traditions to what kind of cat food the Murphys are into. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, Let's as we, we determine, never, never have to find out. Never have. Well, but I, but I tell you again, you know, fancy feast for you cat lovers out there. Fancy feast, the only way to go. But anyway, but we got a lot of good stuff on there. We just did our Q and A uh, that came out. We've got you can't make this shit up coming up. So we got lots of good stuff for you guys to join us at Patreon dot com slash game of crimes we do over one two three four five six seven eight i think eight or nine different pieces of content depending on what level you're at Mm. so make sure you join us patreon.com slash game of crimes now this is a show about crime we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people we take the story seriously but we never never take ourselves serious we want to have some fun and, you know, we thought, should we skip this or we do it? We said, no, this is a weekly tradition. So we're going to keep up the weekly tradition by me asking you, what time is it, Murph? Do you know what time it is? I'm going to ask you one more time. Guess what time it is. It's time for Small Town Police Blotter. That's the theme from uh, the Wild Wild West for you guys. Keeping track. Anyway, Murph. Mm-hmm. So this one, it's kind of like... You're gonna. I'm gonna tell you this story, and you're gonna go. Okay, what about it? I mean, it sounds like kind of a standard story, but it, you know, this happened in Mansfield, Connecticut, or as they say, Connecticut. 
Mansfield, Connecticut. A man has been arrested and faces multiple charges um, after he went to the store Monday night in Mansfield. State police said Troop C troopers responded to a report around 8.18 p.m. of a missing child at the Price Chopper. Um, when they arrived, 30-year-old Colby Parker of Mansfield told them he went into the store, left his child in the vehicle. Uh, he said the child was missing when he returned to his vehicle. The officers and the officials searched the area, but a child was not located. So you're thinking, hmm, sounds like a you know missing kid, right? So what's one of the first things you do? Go check the videotape. Let's go to the videotape. Well, that was his second stop at the store that day. His first stop, yeah, the kid was there. Second stop, the kid wasn't there. The dude was drunk, went to the store, left his kid at home, forgot he left his kid at home, came to the store and said, my kid's missing. <laughs> and by the way, I need to get a case of beer. I need to get a case of beer. Uh, so they went to the child's home, found the child unharmed. Uh, further investigation revealed that Parker was unaware that the child had not gone with him to the store for the second time. How drunk do you have to be? <laughs> but thank goodness he left the kid at home. I know what. And didn't because so... Uh, he did not participate in a field sobriety test. He was arrested and charged with the operation of a motor vehicle under the influence of alcohol or drugs, reckless endangerment in the second degree, risk of injury to a child, and breach of the peace in the second degree. Um, DCF was notified, and now the child is in custody of a family member. How drunk do you have to be to forget that you took, you didn't take your kid to the store? You're not kidding. Uh, you know, I've, when I was young, I was I was drunk a lot, but I'm not sure I was ever that drunk. Well. Speaking of how drunk do you have to be, so this happened during Halloween in Key West, which we know a lot of hijinks, a lot of mm-hmm. things happen down at Key West. It's kind of an eclectic collection of people. Eclectic means like really strange and fun, Murph, just in case you're... You know what this means? Yeah, that means uh, age, friends, or your IQ. So um, so police uh, arrested... You're thinking, what's the big deal? Police arrested a guy for urinating on a Key West sidewalk, right? Mm-hmm. So, But they had to chase him through the old town streets, so... People, people flag the police down about a man relieving himself on the side of a building. And he's doing this right across from the porta. He could have gone to the porta potties, but instead he pees on the building. Now, this guy's name is Mortimer. He's the son of uh, Massachusetts who attends the University of Miami. He immediately fled. They had to chase him. Um, while he was zigzagging to prevent capture, a second cop grabbed him. Uh, he twisted and pulled away before they used a leg sweep to knock him to the ground. Um, so it is Christmas, or it's Christmas. It's Halloween. He, the dude was dressed as a banana. They were chasing a banana through Key West. And even in the report, they said when Mortimer was zigzagging to prevent capture, a second crop, cop grabbed him by the peel. Oh. Exactly what does that mean? I the stem, know. the peel? <laughs> you grabbed my banana. What? That has a whole new meaning when you say you grabbed my banana. I remember, that would be like chasing one of these kids that, that puts on the dinosaur costume. <laughs> I think those things are hilarious. Well, and Murph, when you see his booking photo, he's he was booked in his banana costume as well. <laughs> There's something to be proud of. That's what well, you want was, your future employers to see. Well, and then the other thing, too, is the name of some of these places. He was collared at 1.20 a.m. in front of the Smokin' Tuna Saloon. Oh, well, okay. Well, it is Key West. It is Key West. All right, Murph. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. So you're going to think, okay, this is another story. Uh, you know, what's what's the deal? Um, 18-year-old Santa Rosa man fled CHP, California Highway Patrol, um, and uh, had an accident with an SUV carrying two adults and a child. So Marcus Burton was driving a Ford Mustang, um, and he was 
driving speeds over 100 miles an hour before he slammed into the SUV on Highway 101 near the Mendocino exit. Now, fortunately, nobody was hurt uh, badly. I mean, they did transport some people. Uh, but his vehicle was involved in uh, other incidents involving multiple agencies, uh, and he was booked on charges for evading police, evading police causing injury, uh, child endangerment, all felony charges. And they've got Instagram video of this guy slamming into the back of the SUV. Damn. Now, when they um, went to tow his vehicle and they marked down, you know, what, what information when you tow a vehicle, what, what kind of information would you collect off the vehicle? Well, you get the tag number and the VIN number for, you know. The, uh, the, there you go, Murph. Minimum. Uh, his license plate was covered with a sign that says, will run. <laughs> okay. I'm guessing he had a five liter Mustang. He had a, he had a little hot rod. Yep. And, uh, but when your tag says will run and that's what you do, one of the ways to quit running is to run into the back of something. So Mr. Mr. Rocket Scientist here telegraphed the fact that he was going to run from the police because he put, the only other best thing would have been being booked in with a t-shirt that says I'm with stupid. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, it is funny. I mean, it's amazing what people, what links they'll go to, to do stupid things. <laughs> uh, but it just, but they got, in, again, they got Instagram video, but anyway. We digress. Um, hey, I but guess let me he tell never you heard of radios. Chippy's got radios. Yeah. I mean, it's like, but hey, you can outrun a motor. Just very tough to outrun a Motorola, as we used to say. Yep. Yep. So, hey, Nimurf, but uh, getting away from that and back to this. So we've already done our intro of Rick Rambo. So the best thing to do is to get into the story. But I will tell you, we, we intentionally, we were recording and we realized we got way too much stuff here. So we cut it off after 90 minutes. We're starting this next 90 minutes. And we're starting this next 90 minutes with the tale of the bear. Oh, and and please, even if you don't listen to these shows, go look at the picture. Go to go to Game of Crimes podcast. Well, if you don't listen to the show, how would they know to go look at the pictures? Well, I mean, if they're just listening, because our our wonderful intro that we do. I mean, I'm this is the detraction. It's not the guest we bring on, is it? Uh, I don't know. I if you read a couple <laughs> of the comments, I think I'm the distraction. So. Uh, well, you know what? Let me just address something real quick. I read one the other day where they said for us to stop name dropping. Have you seen that one? Yep. I just want to say it's part of building a rapport with your guest. Now, we welcome your comments. Um, we, the guy still gave us a four-star rating. That's better than a three. That's better than a two and a one. But that's part of building a rapport with our guests because a lot of our guests we don't personally know. We just have the commonality of being law enforcement professionals. So, um, you Well, know. the difference is, you know, if I said, look, the king and I hate name droppers. We're not dropping the name of the king. We're saying, do you know so-and-so? Or, you know, I knew so-and-so. This is the way law enforcement is done. You know, we're all connected by three degrees or two degrees of separation. If I don't know you, I know somebody that knows you. Yeah. It's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And that's, a, that's the law enforcement culture. So uh, we're not taking offense to it. We just, I just wanted to explain it. Just wanted to explain it. Yeah. That's one you of the know, reasons we do it. Yeah. And, and in my discussion with the King of England, you know, uh, King Charles, you know, I brought that up to him. I said, you got to quit dropping my name in your conversations. So he's agreed to do that. No more name dropping uh, me with Prince William and Prince Harry. So yeah, what what, what name was he using for you? Uh, I couldn't, it, it rhymed with uh, what? Uh, peanut butter, something like peanut butter. <laughs> All right. Anyway, hey, but back to our case in chief, as they say, was, look, so um, guys, this is, this is going to be fun. Like I say, um, we've got um, a lot of good stuff ready for you, but Murph, we can't get into our first time doing part three. Mm -hmm. First time doing part three. So Murph, we can't get into part three until I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous? And if you've seen the claws on that fucking bear, Game of Crimes. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Just like we said last time, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. This is really good. Rick, thank you, brother. Once again, we are going where no man has gone before. No, I'm not talking about a visit to your proctologist. I'm talking about we have now. We're This is part three uh, of part two, or I should say part one of part two. So part one had episode one and two. Now part two has episode three and four. So I'm not sure how we're going to name this, but all I know is we got stuff to talk about. That was clear as mud. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The fact that you're back, well, here, and because I had made notes, I wanted to make sure I knew where we were going to hang off or start off. And I know when we ended, I wanted to know if you had doo doo in your pants because we're going to talk about the Grizzly story first. So we have to get the Grizzly story out there first. Well, who, who are we talking to anyway? Well, you don't remember. What's this guy's it name? came from part What's one this guy's and two. Name? It, it, some Sylvester Stallone's uh, brother, I think. Uh, there's, there's, um, yeah, Rambo, Rick Rambo. We got Rick Rambo back on again for part three, whatever we want to call it. So we're back once again with uh, Mr. Rambo up in Alaska, where it's nice and you know, warm and cuddly. And but it's like you said, this is the first time we've done this. Yeah, first Sorry. time. We're at a balmy nineteen degrees today. Oh, really? That's it. <laughs> that's that's pretty shorts. much it. Yeah, I'm in shorts at that temperature, <laughs> man. It's all good. Oh, I showed him the temperature here in Orlando. It's 84 right now. He's going to shoot me next time he sees me. <laughs> hey, it's not bad here. It's 79 right now. It's going to be a great weekend to do a ride. I've got this big ride coming up, so I'm doing a century ride. Um, just got my bike back all being fixed, and uh, yeah, it won't be 19 degrees. That's what I can tell you, man. So you're gonna so you're gonna be riding the big you're gonna be riding the big pumpkin this weekend. That's what I heard, right? Big pumpkin. They ride the big pumpkin. <laughs> What'd you say there now, Mr. Rambo? I, I was just going to tell you that when uh, when uh, Murph showed me his phone with temperature down there, I told him he's just being hurtful, you know? Yeah, just being hurtful. <laughs> just being hurtful. He called me a bitch. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, yeah. First Amendment, the truth mom, is a defense. So, Hey, my mom, might be, my mom, I did not say that. I did not say that word. <laughs> no, he did, he did, he did not, not say it. I said that. I'm so, I apologize. He wrote it out on a placard and held it up, and and he said, what is this word? And Murph goes, bitch. He goes, ha, see, I didn't say it. So anyway, let's get back to you. Let's get back to our story here. So where we left off, <laughs> kind of feels like one of those serial episodes, where we left off last week, our hero was uh, hanging off the edge of a cliff. No, you were, you, let's talk about the grizzly, because we're going to post this picture on the website. That, first of all, that's one big ass bear. If that's, his, you know, it's like Build-A-Bear, Big-Ass Bear. That was mm -hmm. one big-ass bear. So set the stage for us. How did you and this future uh, fireplace rug come to meet? Yeah, so we were on a float trip. Uh, we were about probably 50 to 75 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And when we do a float trip, we generally have a friend fly us in. Uh, we, a couple of my friends have planes, but if we do a float trip where you're going to hit that river and go for two weeks, we have someone drop us off way out in the middle of nowhere on the river. And then we'll go down and get picked up on a gravel bar, or if it's a river that goes near a road system, which is not that common in most places up here, we'll, sh we'll shoot for a place where somebody can park a vehicle up for us. But on this one, we were going to be flying in and flying out. So we were pretty compartmentalized on what we could carry. Uh, but uh, the way it all happened is we were along this river, and uh, we had killed a moose about probably three days before. And... Uh, we were going to kill one more before we got out of there. It was a heavy bear population area. Even when the plane landed, when we came and dropped off our gear and we got out of the plane to you know, say goodbye to the pilot, they take off, 
the echoes of the plane were still on that river when a big brown bear came out on the other side of the river looking at us. So that's when you know it's a heavy bear population. When that, that loud 206, Cessna 206, it takes off and they are, it's like being at an air show when the Blue Angels fly over and you have to plug up your kids' ears or what have you. Really loud to get off that gravel bar firewall. But that bear came out that quickly. So we knew we were in for it for as far as how many bears. And the, be- the beaches uh, along this river, you couldn't go out and see uh, both bear and wolf prints on top of each other everywhere. Uh, but yeah, so we had killed the, killed the moose about three days before, and I'm probably at least, probably a couple thousand yards away from where this position is, where the, where the moose carcass, um, had been hey, real quick. So when, when you say you killed them, what do you, um, what do you do with the moose? So you're out in the middle of nowhere. How do you harvest it? I mean, what do you do with it? That's, it's a lot of work. Once you shoot that moose, there's no fun in it. Uh, that's the, the fun has ended once you take the pictures and, and whatever and all that. And so, no, we, uh, we parse it all up out there in the woods. You take the quarters off. You have to lug them back. We have a sled, a little tiny sled that we can fold up that goes into the, into the planes. I mean, it's, it's made of a polymer, but it's a lot better than having to backpack it out. We, the first couple of years up here, we tried using our frame packs and you'd strap you know, the, the quarters of that, but that's a losing proposition for bad terrain. It's just, you're looking at a 150 pound quarter, maybe even more. So, uh, yeah, we sled them out, but no, but yeah, we'll get the, we'll get the moose back. Well, by the time you're done, it looks like piranha had hit that moose. Moose is that is super good. Uh, we take everything. The only thing left on the ground is the gut pile and the spinal cord. And, uh, you know, if it's, if it's, if we're in a cow season, it might be in the skull. We'll leave that. But other than that, all you see left of, of it is a gut pile and a spinal cord. Take it back to camp. and then- Sounds like a scene from Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, it really is. We don't, hang it, we don't hang it from a tree or anything spooky like that. But, but yeah, no, when you're done and you look back at it, it's just a spinal cord and a gut pile. And that is it, that we harvest every single piece of meat off that moose. Uh, and generally, the guy who shoots it, well, now he has about four or five days of cutting. The other guy's going to be out hunting and all that. But uh, yeah, plenty of time in camp. We're generally out there for two weeks, and like I said, there's no you're in a middle, you're you're 150 miles at, from a bag of potato chips or more. So, uh, so how is this fun then? I mean, you go out, you set up <laughs> for the shot, you take the shot, and then you got five days of work. I mean, you know, describe, you know, describe to me what is in the mind of you people in the bush there in Alaska. Morgan, I'm going to trademark this saying, but it's uh, it's all part of the Alaska experience. Uh, yeah, the meat is just so phenomenal; you can't describe it. It's, it's, it makes it worthwhile after you get home, at least. But yeah, it's definitely a grind. And uh, but no, out there we you know, we clean up all the meat. You can't take the meat off the quarters because of fish and game rules. But everything else, we go ahead and just cut it up, clean it up, put it in bags, and then we sink it in the river in, in dry bags to keep it cold uh, because it can get warm up there even in, during moose season. Uh, into the seventies at times. Well, how do you protect that from other predators then? Yeah. So we hang the parts that you can't cut up and put into Ziploc bags. We take like the, those big quarters, um, the ribs, we take those and hang those on a game pole, like way off the ground. And if you can, you try to hoist them up where the bears can't get to them. And as far as the other things, uh, the, the other, uh, the meat that we parse out into the bags, those go into a dry bag. Uh, and then that goes into the river with a couple big rocks on it to keep it underneath that really cold 50 degree, 54 degree water. And that'll keep you good for a couple of weeks out there like that. Wow. So the, the picture of the grizzly that you sent us, how long are those claws? They look like they're two feet long. Oh, yeah. They look like, uh, like those old buck knives, like an old buck knife hunter. They're, uh, they look like a lock blade. They look like a lock blade. And yeah, they're, they're something else. And the power those ba- the bears have, you know, especially the brown bears, the grizzly bears, those things, when they take a swipe at something, I mean, it's, they're, they're going for the, they're going for the, uh, for the wall. Uh, for the stands, they can. I mean, they can just they can just knock you apart. And as far as their jaw pr- j- well, jaw pressure, Morgan, you'd be interested in this one. Their jaw pressure 
Uh, one of my trooper friends was a former Alaska State Wildlife Trooper before he came onto our drug task force. And uh, this fellow was out on Kodiak. And uh, being a wildlife trooper, that's what they do. They they go out when there's a bear attack, or or they and they also do fish you know, protection for fisheries and all that. But they had a hunter come missing in a camp out there. You know, same thing as a boat in fly in type thing where these guys get dropped off. Two hunters had parted ways. Uh, the one hunter heard heard one shot and but couldn't find the guy. They call the troopers. They go out there. They found the guy dead. They, the bear had gotten him probably to get his deer. They think they 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 found like where a deer had probably been, and the bear came in on it with him. But uh, the bear's jaw pressure was so great that uh, my buddy said there was no wounds to the guy's body whatsoever, except for, for two. He had a puncture up underneath his chin and one through the top of his head. So that was the, the bear coming in on him and then closing his jaws probably like right over the front of his face. But those canines were so, the, the jaw pre- between the jaw pressure and how hard those teeth are and how long, the top tooth had gone through the guy's skull into his brain and the bottom one went up through the palate and that wasn't a deal breaker, but it wouldn't have been good. But uh, they said from the looks of the way the tracks were for the guy, the bear took the deer and left, and the guy was still there alive, just wandering around, probably like, picture like a, a drunken stupor where you're just like, hey, and just kind of like a drunken sailor walking around in circles, and then ultimately he fell down over a little hill. So it probably gave him brain damage or damaged his brain where he was still ambulatory, but not really you know, coherent. But, but that's how powerful they are, that, that canine through that guy's uh, skull all the way down to the brain. Well, let's wow. let's rewind then to how you came upon this bear. So, how far are you into your hunt? You know, um, and uh, going after. So, you know, who's where are you at? Give us the lay of the land. Who's who in the zoo here? Because uh, spatially, yeah. So spatially, my hunting partner, uh, he goes by the moniker uh, Kenai J. Kenai J is a a copper down on the Kenai Peninsula. He's a cop down there. But uh, anyway, Jay's back in camp cleaning up. He shot that first moose. So he's back in camp, probably about maybe a quarter mile away, cleaning uh, cleaning meat. I decided to go ahead and take a jaunt up the river and start doing some calling for some moose. It was a windy day, so I wasn't expecting to kill one that day. But when you call for a moose, those big bulls, you're just doing it with a mouth call. You put your hand. I used to put my hands in my mouth and make a sound that sounds like a moose cow or a moose cow. But they, they come from miles. Okay, Those well, antlers. Yeah, do it. Let's hear it. Come on. Let's hear the moose. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to hear some dogs barking. <laughs> okay. Here, let's here do it is. Here's what, here's what, here's what. I didn't get my lemon juice today or anything or do my uh, Susie sells seashells by the seashore, but okay, here we go. Let's try it. <laughs> Except a lot louder than that. That's that's me. Yeah. That sounds like that's me taking it down a, a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it, I, I guess different things get sexed up for for you know for a variety of reasons, but but oh, it, it brings the boys to the yard. I'm telling you, it really does. I'm, and when, and when I'm they looking come, at the voice waves here on the meter, and it maxed that meter out completely. <laughs> yeah, hey, oh, wow. you go too, no, hold on. Before you go too far, also, what's going to be important about this? Describe how you know because when you're out there hunting and stuff, it's cold and stuff, so it's not as easy as trying to put a firearm like under a jacket. You've got to you've got to deploy your firearms in a different way, right, to be able to have access to them. Yeah, depending on the time of year. Now, on this particular hunt, it was still it's pretty temperate. It wasn't it wasn't below it wasn't like below 35, 40 degrees. We were in the probably the forties, maybe even into the into the low fifties. So not bad. But if you hunt in the other seasons, yeah, you have to figure out a way with parkas and how you can get to a handgun, the rifle, and all the fumbling that you do with that if you have a you know, jacket and with your backpack on. So it's definitely a process, a learning process up here to figure out how you're going to you know, create your kit and make it work for you. 
I've seen some of the rigs where it's right on the chest. So it's like, you know, the old uh, tank, uh, you know, uh, uh, tank uh, gunners and the other folks, you know, they, they'd have the, you couldn't put it down on your hip because it would get caught, you know, coming out of the turn. So you've got it like right across the chest. So I've seen some rigs where it's like goes over and it's right in front of your chest on the outside of your jacket. So you have easy access to it. Yeah, those are best. Uh, there's a company up here called Diamond D, and they make a phenomenal. The, the, the holster will last through your grandchildren. They're real heavy duty leather, but they're kind of the going thing for people up here in the know. But uh, yeah, that's what I carry mine on. And the other problem is, you know, if you're a cop, if you've been a police officer for 25, 20, 25, 30 years, you're used to going for that hip. Like under duress, if that's where you've always carried your gun, whether it's going to be you know, inside the pants or in a hip holster or whatever, that muscle memory is kind of a hard thing to override in a stressful situation. The good thing about those chest rigs is that you can wear it down low. They're adjustable. So it almost translates into a, the same kind of draw, just a little bit different angle. So that's how I carry mine. It kind of goes below my binocular pack, so I can carry binoculars on my chest. But also, if I'm going to, like, under strain or under stress, you know, go for my pistol, I'm still going to the same general area and not trying to get to a shoulder holster or have it all you know weirded out or what have you. So yeah, that's probably the best way to carry it. So you just you just you just called all the men moose to uh, come check you out. You know what's it saying? You know check out what is it your milkshake or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, brings all the, yeah boy yeah boys to the yard. But yeah, and, and I'll tell you I'll tell you uh, guys that those things that you got to feel. I mean you kind of feel even though they taste good. You don't your guilt goes away after you have your first thing of sausage when you get home after you make the sausage. But but you feel bad for them. I mean because just like politicians, that's the one thing that'll really get them is that they uh, they come in and they are so out of their mind, horny that uh, and Randy that they'll their their eyes roll around in their head. I mean I'm not joking. Like when they come in when they're full rut and you call in with that with that pathetic cow call I just made. Uh, they come in, their eyes are kind of like glazed and like looking around their heads are kind of waving back and forth. Like they're like, like they're on, like on heavy seas on a boat. And, uh, and they just, they drool. If you ever heard of moose drool beer, that's not, that's not a joke. They have sometimes a trail of a drool that comes off their mouth, almost all the way to the ground, like a snickersnack just hanging down. Mm. That's how juiced up that that's how juiced up they are when they come in. Well, so you better hurt them. One- you better yeah, there's one brand of beer I'm not gonna if I have it. It's good. The visual now is oh, this is moose drool. No, sorry, man, can't do it. What you know, it gives you incentive when you see them come in like that. It gives you incentive to make sure you make your shot count because you know something bad's going to happen to you if that shot doesn't do what it's supposed to. You're gonna have a really weird story to tell that uh, that emergency room uh, if you, if you make it there about what happened. Yeah, you're gonna either be engaged or uh, have a have a gonna have to explain to your wife uh, why you're dating someone else. Yeah. I don't think they're going to take me to a movie yeah, or take me to a movie or dinner. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you make the call. Um, what happens next? Yeah. So I make the call and I walk a little ways. The wind was really whipping hard. So I, that's why the moose don't generally come in like that when the wind's that hard, but they will start walking your way. Um, and, and so anyway, I hear over the sound of the wind, I'm in an area where the river used to run, but it's no longer there. So if picture like where a river like that had gone, like maybe 50 years before the riverbed's still there with the, with the grooves and the troughs and the little like hills and everything, you know, between, but there's, it's all brushy. So there's all that. Well, I hear over the sound of the wind, something that sounds like a train coming. And, uh, you know, being the fact that we're what, like 350, 400 miles from, I think Fairbanks, um, you know, we, but you hear this, and it's that Doppler effect. I mean, it's coming. And I mean, I knew what it was the minute I heard, it, I'm like, Oh boy. Well, I had a 375 H H Magnum rifle. It's a, it's an African plains game type rifle, really heavy duty. Good for a, you know, good for a brown bear. So I had time to unlimber that. And I moved about 20 yards quickly to my right. To, I couldn't see anything. Well, when the bear pops up, he pops up about 35 yards away. And that translates into speed distance. 
a brown bear can can run at 35 miles an hour. Sometimes if, I think I've gauged him up to 38 miles an hour. So that's seconds for, for 35 yards for him. But that movement that I'd done to the right laterally, um, when he popped up out of where the river used to be, he was looking where I'd been. So that gave me that little bit extra time. So I dropped to a knee and put one right through his shoulder, kind of at a, like an angle, kind of like at a quartering angle. So it would have gone but through a lung. Put, put through what? Because you had a pistol and a rifle. So what'd you use? I used the rifle at 375. Okay. Yep. So I, so I put one, I put one right through the, and I, I had a, I had a tag for the bear. I had the tag for the bear, but up in that area, they considered a predator control area. Uh, we have biologists up here that are really good. They fly these areas and super cubs when there's leaves on the trees and when there's not to do animal counts and what have you. Well, they had determined that area was so thick with brown bear and wolves that, that it was a predator control area. So in all, in all reality, you didn't even need a tag for that bear. You could have just gone back when you got back to whatever population center and had taken, taken the skull and the hide and sealed it with them. And they, they take a tooth for like genetic purposes and all that. But, uh, yeah, so nevertheless, yeah, popped him through the shoulder and that 375 is a really powerful rifle, uh, hit him. And he, he, he kind of like falls backwards and goes into the trough that he'd come up out of where the river used to be. And so I, I reload and I move again. And, and this time I move far to the right again. He comes back out of there again. And, uh, and so and he, same, he gives me the same exact angle, and I take the same exact shot. This time when I shoot him, he stands all the way up to full height and then falls back like an old Western. When the guy, like those theatrical old Westerns, when the guy's on the rooftop and he gets shot, and he's like, oh, you got me. And he clutches his chest and puts his hands up and falls down. He stands up, falls back into the trough, and then about maybe 10 seconds later, with that wind blowing, this giant ball of blood goes up into the air. I mean, it looked like something from like a CGI effect. It didn't look real to me. Uh, big ball of blood, like if you break a big balloon full of blood vaporized blood goes into the air and then actually you can see the wind take it down range and i'm like well that was probably the fat over the hole moving and now that's all the blood coming out of the lung and he's done so uh i our, our rule up here is you never go in on a bear for at least an hour if you're if you're bear hunting black or brown bear and you shoot one you give it an hour at least before you go try to recover so i meet my friend my, my partner coming back from camp we go back to camp and just hang out for about 40 minutes and then we come back and this is part that i'm not really proud of um, I've never killed an animal, even bow hunting, where it didn't die either right there on the spot or like with a bow hunting, you know, it, they might run 50 yards and that's just pure adrenaline and peter out. But uh, yeah, so I wasn't real happy about this one. Uh, we come back and uh, I see we're coming in pretty stealthily. The wind's still whipping really hard. We're coming with the wind to our face and uh, we get about maybe 50 yards away and I see a, blo a, big blo or a big brown paw come up like it's waving at us like, hey, how you doing? Actually, from that from that trough, all you see is the arm come up with that gigantic claw paw, and like it's like it's waving at us. And I'm thinking, and, and Jay, who's a he's a, also a, a proliferant, he's a really good hunter. We uh we stop and it does it again, and he's like, oh man, we both thought that another bear had come in and was eating that bear because there's just so many bear in that area. And I hadn't seen because of the angle and everything else, and how quickly it happened. The bear that I shot was called a toe clap bear. They have some different nicknames for animals up here. Toe clap bears are they're really blonde above and then have really dark brown um, uh, legs and, uh, and paws. So it looks like two different bears kind of attached to, to one. But uh, I hadn't, so I see that and I think it's a different bear. And, uh, but it wasn't, it was my bear and it was still alive. And, uh, and it was trying to get itself situated. I think probably for where the bullet had hit it, it was rolling around. And what you saw was it's that was that rolling around was that paw kind of like up like that waving at us. And like I said, not, not happy about that bear still being alive. It's, I don't, I don't like that. But, uh, the problem we had now is I've got to go and make sure I got to, I've got to finish that bear and it's, you know, 
And uh, so I go, and Jay, does, Jay says, "Well, listen, if it charges you, I have an angle." So he stays where he is, has a little bit of a, a little bit of a, like a little hillock right there that he can stand on, but still can't see the bear. But he has an angle if it charges me. So I go within about twenty-five yards of the bear. It's pretty brushy. I decide, well, I've got six rounds out of my forty-four Magnum, and these are hand loads. I mean, they are they are they're they're bunker busters. Uh, hand loads. You don't want to shoot a whole lot of them out of that gun. Three hundred grain, hard lead. You need to punch through everything. They don't mushroom. They're meant through shooting through a lot of stuff. So I, I dish the 375. It's going to grab onto this, you know, going in to grab onto brush, a little unwieldy. And you've got what really reality close quarter. You've got one good round. It's a bolt action rifle and it's going to be a second before you get the next one. So I opted for the 44. Well, I go in and I get right to where I'm above him and I'm 15 feet away from him, but he's laying on his stomach, looking away from me with a wind in his face now. And, uh, like he was, uh, like he was, uh, like laying in wait. I mean, he was, watching where he was going, uh, laying in wait. And, uh, yeah, so I, th- my big mistake was I thought just the way he was laying there, I thought maybe that he had been paralyzed, like his back legs, but just by the way he was laying there kind of sprawled out, but he was definitely coherent. I mean, he was definitely ready to go, but he just looked odd to me in my, in my mind. I thought, well, he might be paralyzed on the back end. So the mistake I made, even with that wind blowing, I was 15 feet away looking down at him from like maybe a six foot above him, like a little hillock thing. But uh, 15 feet away, I should have double ashed that that revolver and shot him in the back of the head. I was going to shoot him right at the base of the skull. But instead, I pulled that hammer back on it, and I tried to do it like quiet and soft. That bear, I mean, it was right now. There was no kind of like kind of like when you get into a critical incident in law enforcement, a gunfight. Everything happens so quickly, and boom, boom, boom. But uh, yeah, I clicked the hammer back on that pistol to give it a well aimed shot, and that bear right now it rolled onto its back. And like if you'd be sitting in an easy chair, you know, and you pull the ejector button, you pull the ejector lever, it like comes sitting up really fast. That's how that bear sat up. I mean, it w- and it didn't look. And so it and Jay saw my hunting buddy, my keen eye Jay. He saw this whole thing at this point. The bear goes boom and sits straight up like Pooh Bear. If he's going to be having like the honey, you know, the honey jar in front of him or whatever, sits up and he looks me right in the face. And he doesn't look wounded, hurt, discombobulated, like he had two 300 grain 375 bullets go through him. He looks at me like he's like nothing ever happened in the world. And then he comes. He comes forward and rolls over himself with those claws to get into that mound I'm on to come up. And as he's coming forward to me, that's when I shot two. And this is where, like I said, you fall back on training, whether it's where you're going to go for your gun, if you're used to your right hip or whatever that muscle memory is from when you're in a stressful situation. But, you know, and, and with at least in DEA, I know a lot of departments call it different things. We call it a failure to stop drill. It's when you're facing somebody close quarters that has body armor on or they're crazy on drugs and nothing's stopping at this point. And it's two rounds to the chest, one round to the head. And that's what that bear got with that 44. The two rounds of the chest were pass-throughs. They would have killed that bear eventually. Um, but bears can run on pure adrenaline with, with half a heart for long enough to kill you. But uh, the third round hit the bear luckily for me, right in that soft part around where the nose is. So you have that nasal, you have like the nasal bone right there. It's really soft stuff and not that kind of like T-72 tank armor that goes angled where if you hit it, it's going to skip off. But that little, that little three and five eighths inch barreled Smith and Wesson performance center, put that bullet all the way through its nose, out the back of its head, exited the back of its head, went underneath the back fat and that hump that a, that a grizzly bear has. And we recovered the bullet. You could have reloaded that bullet almost. That's how intact it was. We recovered it when we took the hide off the bear. The bullet just fell out of the back hide. But that's that. I would never, I've always considered a handgun marginal, even a large caliber magnum gun for brown bears in, in defense. Marginal at best. But that little gun, it performed. And so that was, that was it. 
So when you got that third round, did it immediately drop him? Was that a was that an instantaneous drop? Right now, it did the same thing it did on that one round where it looked like it was like, oh, you got me. Both big, both big old paws went up in the air and it fell backwards, and that was and that was the end of that. The one thing that I will tell you that was uh, this is like one of those ones you don't tell at dinner time in mixed company. But so the dust is settled, we're all done. Jay comes walking up and we're looking at something coming out of its record. So if you're eating, if you're eating breakfast or lunch or dinner and you might want to turn it, pause it or pause this for a second. But yeah, so we, out of this thing's rectum, it had this thing that looked almost like if you would take just like scotch tape, but make it clear, uh, like I can't translucent, like 15, 25 feet from where its butt is around, you know, around these bushes and back to where I've been running from. And we're looking at this and we're like, what the heck is that? I mean, it was like 20, 25 feet of it. And then we realized it was tapeworm. This thing had had tapeworm. So we, we, uh, so we'd never seen, we'd never seen that before. So we, so what we do is we, and you can't eat, you can't eat this bear. Uh, brown bears are the one animal in Alaska that when you kill them that time of year, especially for when it's in a predator control area, you take the hide and the skull, but you, even, even sled dogs won't eat the meat. The meat is just absolutely rancid because they're eating dead and dying salmon. And so they are just, they're, the, they're the, even living. Those bears are one of the, one of the worst things you're going to smell. If you've been, I, I mean, even as a cop, that's one of the worst smells I've ever smelled as a bear that's been eating that dead fish and whatever. But nevertheless, we get the hide off of him. Uh, we get the skull off of him and we're going to go ahead and play like a, like CSI for a second. So we go ahead and cut the gut area open and that tapeworm inside this thing starts to reel out. And I'm telling you, you know, we, I think we've all seen a lot of things, but I'm going to put this up there with one of those things. that's like, <laughs> this reels out is about half the size of a, uh, of a, of a, uh, bowling ball. So the mass, by the time it reels out, it's about half the size of a bowling ball. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, undulating, like, like as a mass, it's like, it's got like a globular kind of, and it's moving. And, and, and I mean, I always wear gloves. I always wear gloves for bear, you know, nitrile gloves for bear because they stink pretty bad again with your fingers. You can't clean it out for like two weeks. But uh, yeah, I had those gloves on, but uh, it was so disgusting that I know every night in my tent for the next two or three days out there in the field, every time I'd have a hair on my upper leg, I'll just say upper leg, whenever I had anything <laughs> moved down in that area at all, I'm like, Bruh! like did one crawl up my pant leg or, or whatever and all that. I mean, it was, it was really gross. And, you know, for anybody out there feeling bad for, about the bear and everything, I just tell you that. God, we I, we took pictures and we showed the wildlife biologist back in Anchorage when we came back. And he said, well, he goes, you did that bear a favor because with that mass that that bear had right there, uh, there would have been three endings for the bear. None of them would have been good. He would have either died in the den, just been emaciated inside the den because that, that Arctic winter is long. You're looking at them denning up from October until, I don't know, March. I mean, they're in there for a long time. So the, 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 worm, the worms would have eaten him out of house and home, died in the den. Or the second alternative was that he would try to come out of that den in the Arctic in the middle of February, you know, or, or, or January, because he's so hungry and it's just eating him up. And then there, there's no food for him that time of year. There's nothing. And he would he would have died. And then the third one is uh, one that's, uh, you know, D Disney, <laughs> Disney, I remember there are no Disney stories in nature in Alaska. The bear would have come out of his den um, in spring, made it out, but he had been so weak and so emaciated that the other brown bears would have pounced on him right now and eaten him because brown bears they're predatory and they, they're also cannibalistic. They love eating their other people's cubs, black and brown bears. They'll eat each other, give them the chance. And so that bear wouldn't have had a, wouldn't have had a shot at it one way or the other, even if he had survived the, yeah, survived the winter like that. So that was the, that was a happy ending to the bear story. Did you guys kill the tapeworm? I mean, what do you do? Set it on fire or what do you do with it? We just went ahead and walked away <laughs> at that point. Yeah. <laughs> we left it. I mean, to make sure that thing never, I know, ever, man. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, That's it did gross. kind of remind me of aliens. I was I was thinking about Ripley at that point and, yeah. and chest bursters and everything else. But now we we'd had an, we'd had enough blood and gore for that day, so we just went ahead and you know we figured it's going to freeze in about another day or two anyway, and we walked out. Okay, oh. kids. Well, there 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 goes breakfast, lunch, and part of dinner. Yes. <laughs> what a story! <laughs> Holy cow! Oh, okay. I, I you know I've never I've not, I've never hunted bear. Um, I have deer, a lot of deer, but hunting and, and so forth. And and I know about the running on the trimmer. adrenaline. You told me about that time back in the holler. You guys were all drunk and skinny dipping. You decided to go out. Oh, you mean B E A R? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get a mute button on this thing. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, I understand what you talk about, the adrenaline pumping, and, and you got to track the thing down. But, man, I can't imagine. I, just, I think the adrenaline would have been pumping so bad and the nerves going so bad, I'd probably yank that trigger every time I pulled the trigger on that little, looks like a little bull pup or something you're carrying there. Yeah. Well, the real question is, is did you do to your pants? I did. You know what? I didn't have any. Well, my my, my wife calls them rust stains. Uh, no, I did not leave any rust stains um, in the undies on that trip. It was it happened so quickly. And, you know, being a hardened DEA special agent, and, you know, whatever, it just it was just all in a day's work, you know. <laughs> wow. OK, Jeez. well, so much for the bear story. So let's but because what we want to talk about, there's uh, uh, St. Croix involved here because, um, you know, at one point you go right. If I remember right, you go from Washington to St. Croix. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. Well, let's let's talk about that, because I know there, there's a you, you eventually end up back in Alaska, but you're in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, life's got to be good. But uh, the the beach, the sand is calling you. How did you end up in St. Croix? Yeah, still being fairly new. I've been on the job for five years. I didn't think that I would call it a garden spot before I went down there. I didn't think a garden spot like down there would be available for a youngster like me, but it came open and uh, we just wanted to go check something out and kind of do the DEA thing and do another duty position. So put in for it, end up getting, uh, getting the St. Croix office. And what was funny is that the guy who was the, uh, who was the group supervisor down there was one of my PT instructors, uh, Jack from back in the Academy. He's a pretty, he's a pretty cool instructor liked him, but he ended up being the, uh, the GS down there. But yeah, end up, that's just a simple process of just a uh, transfer to St. Croix. That was a, that was a highly sought after post down there. Yeah. And you know, uh, the other thing was the, uh, I think it took like four months, four or five months to get household goods down there. So you live pretty oh, Spartan you out of your, out of your, you live out of your, you know, I, have my, I think I have my dad's Vietnam footlocker and, you know, my, I think my wife had her dad's uh, Navy sea bag and that's kind of like how you kind of make it happen for a bit until you get your stuff. You know, Man, I, you're, I've talked, your wife I've, must be one tough, one tough lady. Well, I've talked to some folks that have done international moves or have done moves like that. So a couple of them said, you know, what was easier for us to do is sell all of our shit, move down there and buy new shit. They took their clothing with them, but it's like trying to do it was just easier to sell everything than go down there and buy something. That's a wise move. Yeah, I concur. Yeah, the military folks, uh, all the ones that are moving, you know, every 13, you know, 18 months, it's like some of them don't even unpack. So, but so Jeez. when you put in for this, like Murph, you were saying it's a highly sought after position. Was it just what, you know, how did you get on just having five years? How did you get above? There had to be other people interested in this that had seniority on you, or did that not occur? Did you just happen to uh, uh, roll the dice and come up, you know, um, seven? All sevens. Yeah, no, that that was that was it. I mean, I didn't, it's not like, you know, in a lot of places, if you know somebody, people can put a word in for you or what have you, but I don't think I knew anybody that would have put in the word for that thing. I was still brand, brand pretty, pretty new, but uh, yeah, I think it was just, uh, it just happened. Yeah. 
Well, also, I've been in those two shootings back-to-back in, in Yakima, so maybe they just want to get rid of me. That might be another consideration. I, I don't know, you know? Yeah, freaking lead maggots. You're going to bring it down there to the pe- right. beaches of St. Croix. Jesus, no. Uh, bullet magnet there. Maybe, like, let's get rid of that kid that has a gypsy curse on him and get him out of a division or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it happened pretty pretty readily and pretty easy, and yeah. Who was your uh, – when you were in St. Croix, who was the sack over St. Croix? We had uh, Jerome. I think it's Jerome Harris. Harris, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, yeah. So he was in, he was in San Juan, right? He was. Yeah. So how big was your office in Saint Croix? On your best day uh, on on that island, you would see seven gun toters. We had three task force agents that were uh, they were unbelievably exceptional. I'll probably be talking to you guys about a couple of them later on after the cast, but but uh, yeah. So had three task force agents. And we had four agents and that was on your best day. Of course, you had people filtering in and out with DEA that were transferring back and forth and people on leave. But if you had everybody, the full contingent, we had a seven, seven person posse on that island. Now, was that considered an overseas assignment? It was considered OCONUS, offshore continental yeah. United States. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was the... Because there's, there's perks that go along with that. What's that? Um, there's, you say there's perks you get, that go along with it. Yeah, you get you get post differential. You may get uh, cost of living adjustments, uh, danger pay, hazard duty pay, different things like that. If you had, I'll tell you, we didn't have any children, but boy, if you had kids that were school age, the other thing they do is they take care of you in that regard. I, I think there was a finishing school. I don't know what you call it. I'm not the one. Kind of, I'm not. I'm not a debutante, but they had something like a finishing school on St. Croix for like grade, you know, one through high school. And this this was like one of those prep schools for going to an Ivy League school for the wealthy people that lived on the island. And so DEA foot, footed the bill for your kids to go to that. It's called Country Day was the name of the school. But uh, they would foot the bill for your kids to go to that school. And, you know, they were, you know, they were you know, top notch. So that's another way they took yeah. care of you down there. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, actually State Department works that out for their employees. And, and DEA kind of rides on their to- coattails. But it's, from what I understand, every foreign post in the world, the kids that go get to go to the very best schools in those countries. Yes. Yeah, you wouldn't want them going to someplace dodgy and having to worry about that all day long. Um, yeah. But what's the meat and potatoes of investigations in St. Croix? I mean, what's your, what's your day-to-day staple um, that they had you working on? You know, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I pictured being out on the boats every day, uh, doing kind of like operation. They call it go. operation. Don Johnson and your little you know, shirt, open shirt, you know, wind flying through your hair. You Crockett and tubs. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, unlike unlike those unshorn guys, I had like the nice manly hairy bird nest going on. So when I showed my chest down there, it would be more of a you know like a lumberjack kind of thing. But yeah, no. So I I pictured kind of like the operation they called it Operation Bat um, over in the Bahamas, where you're out kind of like you know, cruising around in, in the choppers and doing all kinds of crazy what you think DEA does, high seas shenanigans and piratical stuff. And it was kind of a combination of that on Saint Croix. We did a lot of stuff on that island. Uh, you know, Saint Croix. Is only I think it's like 17 miles long by seven miles wide, but they had the same. It's, when we when we uh, got on island, they had the same homicide rate as Gary, Indiana. So it was very violent for how small it was. It was extremely violent. The cruise ships quit coming there about three months after I got onto the island. All the cruise ships were like, "We're not coming there anymore." And what they drove even the tried violence, dr- drugs, drug related. Were they gangs? Were like the you know Jamaicans? They had their posse's and other stuff. Were there gangs involved? Uh, you know cartels. What what was uh you know what was the crime element? Kind of all of the above. There's there was a couple different like organizations that operated in the islands. One group operated right from Saint, the home team. They were called the Commission. 
they operated right from St. Croix. But then you had other factions that had like people on different islands that could come together and do their own thing as a group as well. So it was kind of a kind of a, a mixture. And then you had your local kind of like privateers. You'd have a, maybe a group of two or three guys that had like a speedboat or a go fast where they could do uh, runs, you know, all the way down through the islands over to Venezuela and back. It was just a, a mixture of bad. You had the groups organized, smaller, kind of like little independent operators. You just never, you know, you, had, you never knew who you were going after next. It was a kind of polyglot. Well, what about the uh, danger threat to you and your wife down there? Yeah, so that would be, to tell that story would probably be more like a Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit altogether kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, it was it, one of the first cases we started working is, we ended up being the last case and one of the reasons we were and ended up up here in Alaska. But uh, within a couple of weeks of arriving to the island, um, my what ended up being my task force partner, my primary task force partner, um, um, a fellow that he went, uh, his, his nickname was uh, Majito, uh, he was a former 82nd Airborne uh, guy, paratrooper, and uh, he was also a VIPD uh, detective assigned to us. And all I can tell you is in my entire travels throughout the military, being a cop in Pittsburgh, uh, DEA, he's probably one of the one of the toughest, uh, one of the toughest yet good men I've ever met. He's about, And also he's my size. So that was kind of nice. I have to like look up. Like, when you said VIPD, else. is that Virgin Islands or what is that? Yeah, Virgin Islands PD. Okay. So what yep. was the police force in St. Croix? Did they have their own independent? Was it the St. Croix? You know, how, how was the policing structured there? Well, they had a, they had a, like a, a primary, uh, their, like their primary commissioner that was over on St. Thomas. But then you had like the, the individual, like, the, like, I guess you'd call it almost like a zone or a precinct in a bigger city. That's probably the best way to put it. But they had over on St. John, they had VIPD there with their commander. They had a commander on St. Thomas. And then they had a commander over on St. Croix. And so that's kind of how they parsed that out. Now, that's not a, still British territory, is it? No, it's a U.S. territory, flies a U.S. flag. But yeah, nevertheless, yeah, we, uh, I get there and, and this, the fellow who ends up becoming my, my primary partner, uh, Majito, he comes to me and he says, hey, listen, we had one of our, you know, one of our getting ready to retire old time cops disappear. They found his car burned out, you know, over in the rainforest somewhere or what have you. And we think that he was kidnapped and murdered. And so everything in that island is, has a drug nexus to it. So we found a couple we, you know, a couple items that we were looking at as far as information that geared towards an organization having been the one that kidnapped and killed this guy. So we start looking at that. And it just goes from there and it just snowballs downhill from there. What I can tell you is uh, we end up, there was corruption. There was corruption at all levels. I tell the story to like Murph. I tell the story to veteran DEA guys that have been, you know, in Colombia, Peru, everywhere else. And you start to tell this story and they look at you with that. As soon as you get into the meat and potatoes of it, they're looking at you like a dog that hears a funny noise in their heads, like and goes sideways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, 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 all I can tell you is when you tell the story, it's hard. It's hard to believe the amount of corruption and whatever down there, but we, it was a fight on both fronts between the, between the baddies um, in between the people that were people that we were supposed to be working with, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was all I can tell you is it was it was unbelievable. Uh, and to this to this to this day, I have never heard a story that comes close to the just the amount of sheer evil on every side looking at you and, and just corruption and what have you. But that case ended up going all different places. We came to find that that old guy that had been killed, that old cop, he was a widower, so he's all by himself. Uh, he, he, we couldn't find any level of corruption on his part. Uh, he didn't have access to the airport or to the ports. 
Um, in the end, analysis, my take on it was that this organization was a, was a St. Croix-based uh, organization called the Commission, and that these guys just wanted to scare every cop. Because when you kill one cop on one island, the news filler, and of course, you know, the news gets even worse and worse. Well, it didn't need to get worse and worse on this guy because they tortured him. They did things to this poor old man that, uh, I mean, it, it, everything, you can, just let your imagination run wild with what you can do. Uh, uh, to, to butcher somebody up. And that's what they did to this old cop. And they did it because they knew people would talk about it. And they wanted to scare everybody from the feds to the state guys on the different islands and all the way over into the BVIs, into the British Virgin Islands. But they really worked that guy over by the time it was all said and done. But yeah, so we're investigating that. And it, I'm sorry, I was going to, I was going to say, were y'all able to bring him to justice? Yes, it was a pro it was a process. It took years to make this happen. Uh, we, the, I was only down there for the two years and change and we had we so we formulated the base of you know who had done it, um, how it had happened, and what have you. But it took years after that to get everybody. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out as always on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including. Our book list, any book written by our guests, will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash game of crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash game of crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.